Well, dear folks, we turn to the Word of God. I want you to turn to Matthew's Gospel. And I want us to look at things relating to a feeling, a feeling religion. A strange kind of a title, isn't it? A feeling religion. But God is real. And conversion, real conversion, enters into a relationship with God. So it's not going to church on Sunday. That's involved in joining other Christians in the worship of God. But it's not just that. It's something well beyond that. It's something very personal. It's something which you do at home. Not at church. You do at home. And you do it every day. If you're a real Christian. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what is real Christianity. What is it all about? Because there's a lot of religions in the world, that's for sure. But what is it that marks you out as being different? Marks a Christian out and what he believes and what she believes as being different to the rest. It's that personal relationship with God and it seems inconceivable it seems as though it's beyond the possible when we think of those stars and say how great thou art and how astonishing uh, is there anything too hard for the Lord the Bible says no 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 if God has made those stars and if there is as an innumerable number that is uh, more than the very grain of sands on the seashore then what a great God you are there is nothing too hard for you and at the same time we say to ourselves again and again why should he have an interest in us isn't that the thing that you ask why should he have an interest in us is it taking us farther from us to know that the stars are so numerous is it taking him farther from us to think to ourselves well if he is so great that he made all that and if we are so puny uh, that we we wither and perish like leaves on a tree is one of our hymns said but uh, uh, naught changeth thee it goes on to say yes but by comparison why should he be interested in us but you know I know that when we turn to the Bible and when we turn to the New Testament uh, we find that God is dealing with us in a very personal way very personal way he gets involved as it were in a very personal way and you say well give us an example how does he get involved in a very personal way uh, he did not abhor the virgin's womb what are you talking about man I'm talking about the truth of what the Bible is saying I'm saying that the son of the living God became a man in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It's very personal, very personal. It's different from any other religion in the world. And we ask ourselves again the question, if that is the case, 
then how much of it do we know? How much of it is, are we experiencing? How drab is our Christianity? Our religion? Is it supposed to be this way? Where we go into a church building that is, you know, definitely a church building, does it have to be kind of different to every other building or something like that? Is it appropriate for us as were to have holy water in which we dip our fingers and cross ourselves and do other things? Is it essential that we have some priest who is at the front who does everything more or less for us? Is that what it's all about? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, quite otherwise. Now you could meet in a shack and it wouldn't make any difference because, because God is so close. He's so personal. He's so interested in you. Oh, dear friends, what a lot of things. Even though I've been a Christian for so many years, I think it's over 50 years, when I was 15 and I'm over 80 now, and I think, well, I've not understood it all, but I marvel at it all. I marvel at it all. That God is concerned about me and every individual in this building at this moment in time is concerned about you. And you can read some of the Psalms, and they're so lovely, aren't they? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And disquieted. My spirit is disquieted within me. And we ask ourselves the same question. Why are we dispirited, disquieted? We have such a great God who's interested in us and knows all about us, our ailments. But more than that, our comings, our goings, our ultimate conclusion in this life, and then all that lies ahead. Well, now, you're still waiting for that scriptural text that I'm about to say. And that is, that's just background. Matthew 15, and in particular, verses 8 and 9, and then also some other things Jesus said later on. These people, he says, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, their lips, they worship with their lips, but their heart, the inner person, is far from me. It means more than emotion. I know we talk about the mind and the heart, and when we talk about the mind and the heart, we're talking about uh, the intellect, and at the same time, the emotions, okay? The heart is very often referred to as the emotions. But the heart is more than that, biblically. In the Bible, the heart is something which is the inner being. It's the real me. The real me. So they did some kind of outward worship and they do what has been done in Israel for who knows how many centuries past. And then they go home and they do all the things they ever did before, including the wicked life that they had lived before. And 
forget the commandments of God except to bring up issues. And that's what they did in the case of our Saviour. They found our Saviour's ministry very hard. Why, they said to him, do your disciples not wash their hands before eating? Bread they had in mind, but it didn't matter what it was. Now, it's not at all speaking about what we say to our children. You come in from the garden, wash your hands first and sit down, and then we'll enjoy the meal. He's not talking about that. It's uh, saying that you love the rituals. You love to do the things which are easy. It's very easy to do a ritual. You cross yourself. Very easy to do that. Very hard to give God your heart. Your heart. Our Lord hits the nail on the head in that verse and he quotes the prophet Isaiah. Well has Isaiah prophesied about you. These people draw near to me with their lips, with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. You see, if I can put it this way without telling you the whole of the Bible in one lesson, um, God had a special dealing with one nation in the world. It was the Jewish race. They had a hard time of it, I might add. But then God wanted to draw close to them. And uh, he is a personal God. And uh, he was going to use them in one sense uh, as the custodians of the revelation of one who was going to come, namely Jesus Christ, a Jew, who would be the savior of the believing world who would grant a place in heaven with him like that thief on the cross to the true believer, whether Jew, whether Greek, whether Chinese or Japanese, it doesn't matter who, who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, shall be saved and have the same place in heaven as that person. That criminal hung on the tree hung on the cross next to Jesus. Uh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? Now, what an amazing thing to do. To come from heaven, where he was, in the glory of his heavenly Father, God the Father, and he, God the Son, should become a man. He did not abort the virgin's womb. And he was brought up in a family just as we are brought up in a family and he knew all the aches and pains and all the difficulties of life, he experienced them all, but most of all, he experienced the horrors of the cross, becoming, as it were, the one who was to bear in his own body the pain, the punishment, and the wrath of God because God sees us as we really are he knows us, and he knows all about us, all our thoughts, all our words, all our deeds. But that wrath that we all deserved, and a great example of that, by the way, was that astonishing outpouring 
of water from the skies in the great deluge that took place where God said, I regret having made man. And mankind was drowned. But you know, though that may seem horrific to us, it's a reminder of the wrath of God that was poured upon that one individual, the Son of God, in order to put sinful man right with the God who made him. You, me. What kind of religion then ought we to have? What kind of Christianity ought we to have? A feeling one. A feeling religion. There was, in one sense, a, a reason for having the first hymn. There's probably more than one reason I could say for having that beautiful hymn, Immortal Honours Rest on Jesus' Head, My God, My Portion, and My Living Bread, and so on. Oh, for grace. Oh, that my soul could love and praise him more. His beauty's trace, his majesty adore. Live near his heart, upon his bosom lean. Obey his voice and all his will esteem. And even as Christians, we sense and feel that though we have come into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ and realize how much he must have loved me to have died upon that cross, even still we groan under the thought of, oh, if only I could love you more, serve him better, serve him from my heart. And that was the problem with the Jewish people that our Lord was addressing on this occasion in Matthew 15. Their worship was with the lip, but not with the heart. Not with the heart, but that's how it should be. Oh, that I might love him more. Live near his heart. Upon his bosom lean. His majesty adore. Don't you wish you could live up to some of the hymns themselves, you know, uh, carried away in the spirit of a good and a wholesome hymn. Well, why did I choose that first hymn? Well, partly at least because of the man who wrote it, who was among a number of men of that particular epoch of time, the 1800s. And he had a hymn book all of his own, but it wasn't his hymns, though he did include some of his own hymns. But he included a hymn which amazingly has been quoted uh, time and time again, by people who are not of his denomination, they were effectively strict Baptists. But um, indeed, it was a, a great work that was being done in those days uh, in the origin of that particular movement. But he was a, a very influential man for good in society. He also did a, a number of very practical things uh, to help the poor and the needy. And he had an association, too, with a man called John Warburton, uh, who was always on the, on the fringe of himself, his uh, wife, and his children, on the fringe of being put into a workhouse because they were so poor. So there were a group of men who, in that time, lived. And one particular hymn that he publishes, published, and there are very few hymn books which have published it these days, it's um, 
one by Joseph Hart, but it's often quoted, often quoted. Uh, I think Stuart Olliot has quoted it, um, and uh, the book More Than Notion um, is a book uh, which title uh, gets its title from uh, the hymn I'm about to quote to you. And it's just an unusual hymn in many ways. Uh, and it goes like this. What it is to be a Christian? Vain, it says, is all our best devotion. If on false foundations built, true religion is more than notion. Something must be known and felt. And that's, again, all part of the caption that I've given what I'm saying this morning. What is Christianity? It is a feeling religion. Now, you may go back and you may look at your own Christian life, if you're a true believer here this morning, and you may say, well, yes, and would that it still was. You say, well, hang on, why is it not what it was? Isn't it still a feeling religion with you to this day? Why is it that you cannot enter into it, as it were, in a feeling way, like the psalmist, you know, why is my soul cast down? And then you go to the Lord in prayer and you unburden yourself with him <clears throat> because you're dealing with your God and your Savior as if he was equal to yourself. No, no, no. Not equal in power. No, not, not equal in holiness. No, but as one who understands. Is that just because he's great? Our God so great? Or is it more than that? <coughs> it's more than that. Go right back to the beginning of the creation of man. Why was man different to anybody else that was created? Any other <coughs> living animal created? Why so different? <coughs> One thing. Let us make man in our own image. That's where the difference lies. In our own image. People have tried to understand that. <coughs> you probably will never understand it in eternity itself. <coughs> Not so much that we are made in his image, but that Jesus Christ was made in our image. But what we're enabled to do is have communion, fellowship, a relationship with the living God in his image. You find in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, you find things which sound um, mysterious. Uh, God is walking in the cool of the day as it were, in the Garden of Eden. And uh, he is uh, looking for a man <laughs> who is ashamed of himself because he's just taken what he should not have taken uh, of the fruit of the tree and so on. Um, yes, but you find that God is speaking to his creation, to man. He doesn't speak to any of the other Animal kind that he made, but a personal relationship with God 
is possible is the experience of a true Christian. That you say, yes, I, I, I knew that, I, and yet I've let it drift. Well, don't, don't. Renew it, renew it. Get down on your knees at home in prayer. Find a corner where it's quiet. Tell God, as it were, your complaints, not against him, for he does nothing wrong, but your feelings of exhaustion, of being tested over much, and your soul is disquieted within you, just like the psalmist of Isaiah 42. But you know whom you can turn to. And that's what a Christian has. He has a religion, he has a faith, he has something that's so real that he takes all his sighs, all his groans, all his trials, all his difficulties, and he casts them on the Lord. Are you doing that? You used to do it in days gone by, perhaps, but you've allowed Satan to take a hold in this way or in that way, and perhaps your Christianity is one of mere attendance, of mere doing what you're required to do according to your position in church life or whatever, but you've lost the sparkle and perhaps you're even feeling sorry for yourself. That's crucial that you should never do that. Sorry about yourself. That we do not cling to our faith more firmly than we do. But don't grieve, as it were, as if God was letting you down. He doesn't let his children down. You're precious to him. Well, now, what I'm really saying to you is this. Christianity has got some remarkable things about it. It has remarkable teachings and doctrines and the like. But why that particular hymn is quoted so often that I said to you that Gatsby's got in his hymn book is this, vain is all our best devotion if on false foundations built true religion is more than notion. Something must be known and felt. And that's why it's quoted so often. You will feel nothing if you don't know something. It's what you know that makes you feel. Can he love me? Here I am living for myself. Here I am having made mistakes. Here am I where my marriage has broken down. Here am I where my children don't even take an interest in me in my old age. All these things. <laughs> well now... Something must be known, and it's what you know that keeps you going. And when the feelings again come back again into a lively, living, feeling religion. Now I have here a quotation, and I'll try and bring it to you. I have here a book as well. I signed this book. I signed, <laughs> I signed it... Um, uh, yesterday, this book is Richard's gift to his precious wife, Gwen. Uh, with much love for her spiritual comfort. 
require spiritual comfort. The man who wrote the book, a man called John Warburton, uh, knew uh, the man I've been quoting to you, William Gadsby. He, he knew him well, or, and vice versa. But this man was brought to a position where he thought he would go into the workhouse. He was so poor, so very, very poor. But his book is entitled The Mercies of a Living God. Uh, if you can get hold of that book, and you can get hold of it, but it's in second-hand bookshops. I've got two or even three of them, I think. But I gave this to my wife quite recently. She's been reading it avidly. Uh, she wants a feeling religion. Here is a man who had a feeling religion. You may have heard of another man called uh, J.C. Philpott. He was a very clever man. He was at the other end of the scale. He was an Anglican minister, and he said to himself, all this stuff in Anglicanism, all the ceremonial in Anglicanism, I want the real thing. And he looked at it. And though he was a very knowledgeable, very high-reaching academic, he formed a friendship with John Warburton. And he gave the foreword to his book. A man who was experiencing God. Hatcher. Rely upon his God, lean upon his God every single day of his life because it was always, as it were, up to question whether he could survive another day. His wife, read it. Wife is going to bear another child. How much have they got in the house? A penny, I think it was. They were in dire straits. They didn't have another penny left, I don't think. Well, they did have, I think it was two shillings. Two shillings left. Okay. So what happened? A postman came. All right. So the wife opened the door. John heard the conversation. One and eleven pence, said the postman. One and eleven pence. Mail. Mail coming. One and eleven pence. They only had two shillings. She comes stumping up the stairs with the envelope in her hand that had come and cost one and eleven pence and they only had two shillings and throws the letter down at his feet. I said, now, how, how much have we got left? A penny and threw that at his feet. Got to live off of a penny and we've got children. How are we going to do it? He opened the letter. It was a gift. A gift of money. Oh, how he praised his living God. Is your God a living God? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? What's your problem? What are your difficulties? Where are your doubts? Where do they lie? When J.C. Philpott was called upon to write a foreword for the book, Knowing, indeed, of the death of dear John Warburton, I've been to their grave, actually, very interestingly, both he and his wife. Um, and uh, Philpott, in the preface to the book, Mercies of a Covenant God, written by John Warburton of his experiences of having to trust God in the midst of deep poverty, in life, he stuck by a feeling religion, and in death, the feeling religion stuck by him. 
His desire was, as a Christian, to experience the sweet inflowings of the love of God to his soul, and as a minister to debase the sinner, but exalt the Savior, and trace out the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart from the feeling, living, and daily experience of it in his own conscience. He lived as he lived, so he died never wavering from the truth, never carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, never venturing beyond his depth, never speculating or reasoning beyond what he knew and felt for himself, even seeing more and more in himself to loathe and abhor and ever more and more in the Lord Jesus to admire and love. A feeling, really. So one's not really dragging this title, as it were, uh, into the foreground as something new. There was a sense in those days that things were no longer relished in spiritual matters. That's a good word, I think. No longer did people enjoy what they were reading. No longer did they feel a relationship with their God which they perhaps had done, but had grown cold. Warburton himself uh, was faced out many a time during his uh, long ministry, I think in three churches, and um, he said, you know, there was never a, I'll just say this by way of background, never a stronger Calvinist than John Warburton, or for that matter, uh, than William Gatsby, his friend. Uh, and yet, there was a form of Calvinism in those days, and I'm not accusing us of that uh, being in that category, but just a form of Calvinism in that day where it was all in the mind. True religion is more than notion. Joseph Hart, who wrote it, was a Calvinist. <laughs> it's more than notion. Something must be known and felt. And... Uh, this is what Warburton wrote in his book. Some of them, the people who very often criticized him, some of them will talk wonderfully about the doctrines of grace, but have never known what it is to water the throne of grace with their tears. That God, the Holy Ghost, would cause his doctrines to drop as the rain and his still small voice to distill in their souls as the dew. Things. Uh, they know nothing about these things by soul experience, for they are hid from the wise and prudent professors and only revealed unto babes. And the dear Saviour thanked his father that this was the case. There's a sense in which we need to know. Something must be known. What is it that's so wonderful about our faith? Get to know it. And when we know it, feel it. Pray that you might feel it. There's a lovely hymn that has come out. I haven't heard any criticism of it because I don't think there's any criticism of it. Um, it's not one of these kind of modern trite chorus type hymns it's the hymn that may well be known to you. Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. 
It's all about the grace of God. It's all about uh, the Reformed faith and its Calvinistic principles, all of which are right. My God has chosen me, the one of naught, to sit beside my king in heaven's court. Oh, it goes on. And when I think of how at Calvary he bore sin's penalty instead of me, amazed. I wonder why he, the sinless one, should die for one so vile as I, my saviour. But verse 4, the last I quoted, precedes verse 7. It's what you know by way of the saviour. Come now, the whole of me, eyes, ears, and voice, join me, creation all, with joyful noise, praise him who broke the chain, holding me in sin's domain, and set me free again, sing and rejoice. The first one who wants that can have it as a gift from me. I got plenty more where that came from. Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. Have we lost that amazement, that sense of feeling? I tell you, some of those early Calvinists, they knew it right deep down in their hearts. They preached it. John Morgan had, had a lot of ups and downs, a lot of difficulties. But the congregation grew and grew and grew to, what, 900, I think, in the end. There was in him, in his heart, a feeling faith. I want to go on a little bit more this evening on that subject. But we'll wait until tonight. Feeling. Let me just read this from J.C. Ryle, and then we'll conclude. There is a vast quantity of so-called Christianity nowadays, and this was in the 1800s which you cannot declare positively unsound, but which nevertheless is not full measure, good weight, and 16 ounces to the pound. It is a Christianity in which there is undeniably something about Christ and something about grace and something about faith and something about repentance and something about holiness, but it is not the real thing as it is in the Bible. Things are out of place, out of proportion, as old Latimer, he was a martyr who was burnt alive, as old Latimer would have said, it is a kind of mingle-mangle and does no good. It neither exercises influence on daily conduct nor comforts in life, nor gives peace in death, and those who hold it often awake too late to find that they have got nothing solid under their feet. Now I believe, says he, 
the likeliest way to cure or mend this defective kind of religion is to bring forward more prominently the old spiritual truth about the sinfulness of sin. People will never set their faces decidedly towards heaven and live like pilgrims until they really feel that they are in danger of hell. He's touching on the same subject, a feeling religion. There is a God who is angry with an unrepentant world. Perhaps that's you. There is a God who smiles upon those who have looked towards the Son of God and the cross for their salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal hope. And that smile, that love, that grace is given and shown throughout the whole days of our earthly pilgrimage. And may it rejoice us if we are part of that number that are saved by grace. Let us pray. Father, saved by grace. It's not our doing. It's what he did when he went to that cross. Help us to feel it in our souls by faith. Help us to amend our lives as required. And Lord, help us to live to the glory of the one who loved us enough to die for his elect, being such as believe on him for their everlasting life. Hear us then, Father, and bless us, we pray together. As we continue with our last hymn, we ask it in our Saviour's name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing that last hymn, shall we? I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Number 432. 400. Sorry, it's not that one. It's, uh, I'm looking at the evening. It's 534. Uh, it's in heavenly love abide, uh, abiding. 534. And uh, it was chosen with a view to uh, us resting in our Saviour, in our God, in life's darkest hour, number 534.
and heavenly love abiding no change my heart shall fear and safe is such confiding for nothing changes here Lord if others so often so often our fears are that things will change things will not be as good in the country in the church and indeed as we look around we can see the decline as it were in standards in this country of ours and in the world but Lord nothing changes because you're the God who is the changeless God and the promises are secure Lord our Father we just rest in those promises those promises of everlasting love and everlasting life thank you Father be with us we do pray bring us back again in the evening hours that we might worship you the more and love you more extensively than we do. And may mercy and grace and love coming from your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, rest and abide with us both now and forevermore. Amen.